Sometimes when I explain my, how we were thinking about it to uh, some of my colleagues working in self-driving cars, they said, wait a minute, you're cheating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After all these years, I like the idea that we're cheating. You know, it's like making the problem, cheating in the sense of making the problem a little easier. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today, Sanjeev Singh, is the CEO and co-founder of Near Earth Autonomy. The company's mission aligns very neatly with its name. They are building autonomous vehicles that fly. We cover some of those in this conversation with Sanjeev. We talk about how he went and started a company like this and some of the differences between autonomous ground-based vehicles, and autonomous vehicles in the air. I learned a ton. I am confident that we are going to do another conversation with Sanjeev in the future because there is so much yet to learn. But for now, enjoy the next 45 minutes with Sanjeev Singh. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Sanjeev, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. I want to start off just explaining for people Near Earth Autonomy's business model. I think there's a lot for us to explore about drones, autonomous vehicles, all sorts of big ideas. But just to understand the business that you're currently operating, the service that you bring to market, the client and or customers that you serve, can you kind of paint that picture for people? Yeah, thank you. So we have a main kind of a business model that we've been developing and then there's some sort of auxiliary ideas that we're exploring of how to take the technology to the market and how people can find use for it, how to monetize it, how to make it a win-win for, for people such that it can be sustainable. But the main business model that we're, we're exploring is to develop technology that will make aircraft, especially the new generation of aircraft, which will be unpiloted, make them safe and efficient. Okay. Safety and efficiency are usually sort of like pull that in different directions. Yeah. Okay. If you're efficient, you may compromise on safety or you push safety too much, then you, then you can lose efficiency. So the idea is to sort of develop technology that keeps aircraft safe and efficient. And these are mostly, we're talking about transport of some sort, okay. transport aircraft that will fly without pilots. And so the model that we use is to, uh, it's a B2B model. So we're thinking about how we would integrate our technology with providers of aircraft for the most part. There are some cases we're thinking about complete vertical solutions, but the main technology is about uh, technology that is integrated into aircraft that will do transport of, we say, packages, patients, and people in that order. Okay, so packages is some sort of some form of cargo. Patients are sort of passengers that are in a hurry. Yeah, emergency response yeah, vehicle that's right, sorts. that kind of thing. And then eventually passengers who will get into a vehicle and fly from A to B without a pilot. Gotcha. And so it seems as we've come to the autonomous and or robotics space in other interviews, I think about it very much like the OEM model for uh, the largest car manufacturers, where we can think of all the different brand name cars and how they're the maybe designer, the final assembler of the uh, car that you're driving. But the specific widget, maybe the the one side of your carburetor, I'm not a, I'm not a car guy, so I'm probably putting my foot in my mouth. But you know, there's other specialized providers that sell into the large org that handles that final assembly. Near Earth Autonomy is basically saying we're not going to be the final deliverer of the transport uh, or the patient moving or the thing moving drone that one may purchase, but that that uh, vehicle's ability to safely navigate in an efficient way will be dictated by technology that we're developing. That's absolutely correct. Now, whether we think of our technology more like a headlight or a carburetor or something a little bit more fundamental is a is an argument that we are working with uh, continually, and we're trying to make the case, just as in as with self-driving cars, that autonomy is a special set of technology. It's cutting-edge technology, not easily uh, obtained, and requires a lot of systematic and 
collaborative development that this is not just a widget that you can add on to a car. Right. It, so. it seems much more complex than that outside of, outside of being able to fulfill a very kind of straightforward physical function. We're really talking about a highly dynamic technological capacity. Yeah, it, it is a, a technology that is sort of brand new. Okay, and constantly evolving. So as you imagine it becoming more complex and as you imagine that you are continually evolving it, that is not just a box that you buy at one point and it's like a phone that is, you know, iPhone 9 or 10. It has a certain set of capabilities. It's, a, it's going to be a continuous evolution for specific kinds of use cases. Gotcha. So take me through the 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 barriers to thing transportation because i think we can agree there's going to have to be a really high bar for safety for regulatory approval before on a day-to-day basis people are just hopping into uh, a, f- a flying car and going from place to place right but perhaps like i think everyone's familiar with the it, what was basically an infomercial for amazon when jeff bezos said that right. these drones are going to like deliver things to your front door right. and it just so happened to be like right before christmas shopping whatever year he did right, that on right, 60 right. minutes where maybe do things stand now and like, like what are kind of the barriers specifically in front of that being a more common reality in our lives? So I think that there is this sort of intersection between desirable, doable, and economically viable. Okay. Right? So uh, you need all three of them for some technology to be adopted, right? Desirable is somebody wants it. Uh, wants wants it. Now, it could be that the people who want it are not the end users because if you're ordering cleats or headphones or something, do you really care if it was delivered by a person who walks up to your door or is delivered uh, to your front uh, from your house by a drone? You don't care, right? You just yeah. want it there in a certain amount of time. Right? It's almost a black box, really, because like, if your door is closed, you're focused on other things. Right. So the, the people who, for who this is desirable are the people who are actually doing the logistics of taking this stuff to you. And they realize that they have an economic kind of advantage to be able to deliver uh, things on the same day or very rapidly. And, um, or the cost today of delivering is high. And if they want to scale, they need to reduce that cost. So that's, that, that comes from a desirable kind of thing, right? They need, they need these things to be done quickly. The doable thing is, can you actually do this kind of last mile delivery? Or uh, there are actually turns out to be different categories of delivery. You know, when, what we call last mile delivery is going the last few miles right to the doorstep. Yeah, right? that turns out to be a hard problem because uh, houses are not built homogeneously. Right yeah. there, I live in Squirrel Hill here in Pittsburgh. It's a hilly area with lots of trees and wires around my house. So if I look at my house, you know, a lot of Pittsburgh houses have stairs, lots of stairs. They have a, may not even have a backyard, uh, or if they have a backyard, they may have tall trees. These are not easy uh, places to get to. Or right? even just if I think about like the neighborhood where I grew up, a variance between certain houses because they were built later, have their mailboxes right at the street while the rest have them back onto the property somewhere on the porch. Right. For example. So so I think that this last mile delivery can become a difficult thing if, if that's the task, right? If you want to get it uh to the very end, like Jeff Bezos imagined, that there, there's going to be places in the country where that's totally doable because it's rather flat and there's not so much vegetation in the large backyards, etc. But for the most part, it's not an easy thing to do sometimes. So there's this question about how much can you do, and then there's a question of economic viability, right? You know, there's a sort of a can we do this when we take into account liability, when we take into account maintenance, and uh, can we take into account the comms that somebody's going to have to deal with the fact that the communications that somebody's going to have to put into place such that you can be continuously in touch with the drone if it gets into trouble or anything else like that. So when you put all of these costs together, is there, um, is there an economic case to be made for all, all parties, the people who are not only using it, but also the people who actually produce the technology and put it out into the world? So I, I think that uh, you know, when you look, at the, you look at real solutions, technology gets adopted when the intersection of those three is, works. Right. right, and I think that that's that's where we are um, in actually trying to find uh, 
a path to that intersection between um, all of these kinds of things. And one way to think about it from our perspective is you could take this long shot and try to get all of those things set up, but maybe we could look for some smaller applications where one of those is not so important, where the, for example, economic viability is not such a strict thing because you need to be able to do it for various reasons where the economics are not the dictating um, element, right? So that's how we go about sort of getting to this, uh, this idea of uh, how do you do this transport? And it's clear to us that uh, there, there are some business cases in which cargo will matter, and there's certain types of cargo which will matter, which will be more what we call mid-mile. Okay? Okay. Mid-mile is sort of like uh, from some distance to the warehouse, from where, or to a distribution point, from where you can do the last mile. It turns out that there are many ways to do last mile. It could be a walking person. It could be a thing that rolls on the... Yeah, I've seen um, the slow little rovers. Yeah, that that's right. Or it could be, um, you know, any any form of last mile delivery. So our, our just are looking at it, mid-mile may be a better target for economics. And okay. probably also not the lowest ticket commodity goods being the thing that might get shipped. I mean, like there's the Amazon day where it tries to like batch a bunch of things together to create the actual uh, higher value to that thing that might be delivered. But something like a uh, highly necessary medicine that just has a higher kind of cost associated with it in which that time is really Yeah, a it could maker. be. For example, we have a lot of inquiries about whether we could help with vaccine delivery. Yeah. You know, taking vaccines. Uh, no, vaccines, you know... Uh, dollar value or importance per pound is very high. Yes. And so we we look at these kinds of uh, use cases and we think about how, uh, what is the order in which we would go at this such that we can actually get some traction in the world. You There's all of this. And then on top of that, there's regulation, right? Yeah. And so you had this little bit of an interesting paradox, which is the aircraft, the idea of aircraft doing delivery is very, very, attractive because it looks like it could reduce cost a lot, okay? But we also know that there is historically a very linear relationship between cost and safety. And in, in a very specific way, typically the safest aircraft tend to be the, the more expensive aircraft. This is a complex relationship, but the idea is when you have large expensive aircraft, you have redundant systems. So mm -hmm. if one fails, then there's a redundancy in the system. So less likely to fail. When you get when you're forced into a smaller and necessarily cheaper aircraft, you don't have those redundant systems because if you had those redundant systems, they wouldn't be cheap anymore. Right. Right? So they're likely to be what we call have single string failure kinds of cases. Right? And now uh, the question is, where is the bar going to be for safety standards? If we expect the delivery drones to be as safe as a 737 that's flying, then you're going to need much higher grade equipment to be able to achieve that that result right that that level of safety right and so uh so there's there's that kind of conundrum uh but the more immediate thing is that the FAA which is a regulating body here hasn't uh provided a definitive kind of um set of rules and standards by which we can fly aircraft we call beyond visual line of sight, which means that there's no pilot ready to take over if something goes wrong. So it goes over the horizon or goes past the trees and the, yeah. the pilot, the ground pilot is not maintaining visual line of sight to that and has to fly by itself. And it's it's a, a somewhat new framework for civilian regulations. There's a history with military use of a drone operator, you know, operating their drone where they're not necessarily seated. But we're really talking about something from a civilian capacity of all those regulatory books, the FAA, most of it was written with the premise of, well, there's going to be at least one pilot in the cockpit, maybe two. And so even the kind of like base assumptions have to change significantly. Yes, yes, of course. And, you know, drones have been coming for a while, um, so it's not like it's totally surprising. Sure. But uh, yes, correct. The regulations are really actually made for piloted aircraft. Yeah. And the idea is that, okay, if you have somebody on the ground and they're maintaining sight to it, they can take over they're still a pilot in command, yeah. right? Even though they may not be sitting on the aircraft, they're still a pilot in command. So that part, which is 
we call that Part 107. Uh, it's a regulation that the FAA has, which, it, which means that you can fly for commercial purposes. You can fly aircraft that are less than 55 pounds as long as you have visual line of sight. That is actually, doesn't have a regulatory uh, burden right now. It's very doable. And if you can make a business case out of that, then, um, well, there's, there's some applications. And we are actually looking into these kinds of, uh, you know, applications, verticals in which we would provide a full solution uh, where it's not about the aircraft, Okay, this is clearly not going to be about transport in that case because, you know, if a pilot has to maintain visual line of sight, then it's not about transport. Yeah, right? you're not, not going very far. Very far. <laughs> you're not going very far. But it's really about the start of some data analytics pipeline, right? And there's lots of reasons data analytics, you know, you, you, if you're flying, you can get a vantage that you couldn't from the ground. You can collect data and register it. Um, um, and uh, make it available over time, this could be very valuable. So these are some interesting applications that we're, we're looking at. But the main focus is on the transport, which is the big ticket item, which is, has the most amount of potential, where there's a lot of interest of sort of like flying, um, you know, directly without going through a hub, point A to point B. Right, layovers, the end of layovers. <laughs> Yeah, when in, when in you're a, thinking about sense. when you're thinking about transporting passengers, right? When you're thinking about uh, cargo or something else, so, you know, just go directly from A to B, yep. uh, rather than uh, routing yourself. So, if uh, I'm sending a, a a FedEx package from Squirrel Hill to Monroeville, believe it or not, on FedEx it will go to Memphis first. So I've seen that in the app, right. they'll track like what it, where it is that you're sending the thing, and it's wild how many subsequent stops. And it makes sense if you think about it from the the idea of that logistics is a network, a network with more nodes is right. going to be able to reach more places with a degree of efficiency. But there's always going to be a somewhat nonsensical direct path between point A and point B when that network has so many different nodes on it. That's right. That's right. So there is a just a very large number of applications where if you can go directly without having to go through a hub, it makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And so there are some use cases that uh, we're looking at where it could be monetized in the near term where the risk is relatively low and maybe the FAA would give us an okay to do that or the FAA does not have actual jurisdiction in those in those cases so there there's those are sort of stepping stones to being able to get to this point where you know you have this sort of uh, national airspace where you can fly without actually having a pilot now what you're transporting at that in that case could be anything right on so i want to talk a little bit about the future later in the conversation but i'd really like to help illustrate for people how we got to current day for near-Earth autonomy. So I'm imagining there's a couple chapters here. However they organize in your head is how I'd love to hear the story told. But I would imagine there is the kind of genesis event. Hey, I've got this idea. I think this could be a company for reasons X, Y, Z. And then the initial stages of the, the viability of a business like this, because we've talked in past episodes about something like, you know, university technology transfer, where something that comes from kind of a more academic environment has to move into commercialization and the multitude of challenges or kind of um, characters that play a role in something like that. So can you talk a little bit about the, the, the genesis and then the initial stages of making this into a viable business? Yeah, it's actually a really great area to talk about because... Um, sometimes that's, that's lost. So my uh, background was in self-driving cars. I arrived in uh, Pittsburgh in 1985 to work on what is now considered the first self-driving car ever. Okay. We didn't call it that um, back then. We just thought, it. well, here's an interesting project. We're taking a ambulance sized vehicle and getting it to drive by itself. So my job as a young engineer, I just got my master's was to sort of, um, make that vehicle controllable by computer signals, okay? And it was just arrived as a shell, and then we put the motors on the steering column, and uh, there was a hydrostatic transmission that you could give a voltage, and it would, uh, you know, it would react. So I, I wrote that interface. It took, it was not, you know, things that we do in weeks or months at that time, uh, things we do weeks today. Uh, but uh, in the early going, that was my job. So I, I spent my early part of my career learning about 
self-driving cars or um, mobile, what we call mobile robots. Okay, this was a particular case of a mobile robot that was outdoors. It was one of the few that were outdoors. A lot of them were indoor mobile robots. And then we, uh, I specialized in an area we call field robotics, okay, which is like how do you take the, these kinds of technologies and apply them to vehicles that would operate in farms, orchards, in underground mines, in uh, on the battlefield, you know, on the surface of a of a planet, that kind of thing. So this general area of how a, a machine can understand its environment, use that information to get safely from A to B. While fulfilling, while fulfilling some objective. Sometimes it's carrying an instrument. Sometimes it's carrying spray material so they could spray. Um, sometimes it's carrying uh, a sensor that might uh, detect infestation in, a, in an orchard. So whatever it is, some way of doing mobile robotics um, in these kinds of environments where you cannot control the ambient conditions. Right, it's outdoors. Now, in some cases, you actually have infrastructure that can help you. So, if you are in an orchard, you have very straight lines of trees, and you can help you there. Versus, if you are in a battlefield kind of thing, you might have, you know, just complete unstructured terrain that you have to figure out which part to get over and how to get information about that. Some prior maps versus what you can sense on your own kind of thing in the, on a uh, on the surface of a planet, it's going to be yet another kind of set of combination of, of kinds of things. But the, the defining and unifying characteristic of the work that I worked on was, um, in the early going, was how do you work in, in these kinds of environments where you cannot control the ambient conditions? You know, you don't think of the fact that the lighting changes or it becomes it's dusty or it's snowy as a kind of a, a bug. You yeah. think of that as a sort of badge of honor that you get to work on these kinds of things. So that was the background. And in the early 2000s, you know, there were these uh, DARPA challenges happening that sort of like were then, you know, we'll look back and see them as a sort of a threshold moment in which a lot of technology started to come together. Right at that time, I was quite involved in that, but also there was this interest in taking some of these technologies for low-flying aircraft which is basically doing the same thing that we were doing with the uh, self-driving cars, but for aircraft that were that operate, you know, a few meters, like maybe 10 meters off the ground, you know. So if you're going to fly A to B, fly very close for various reasons, fly low, you have to be able to be aware of what's in the environment so you can stay safe, for yeah. example, right? So I got involved in some of that work early because <laughs> through some sort of, accident, uh, some connections, et cetera. But what happened was that that seemed to get a lot of traction. And there were very few people doing that kind of work. So I sort of like uh, started pushing on that. Uh, we were getting some um, some interest from various places and that became a kind of a specialty. I just say that it kind of snowballed, that area snowballed and started to see from a unique perspective that when you fly, Okay, as a researcher from who's been working on ground vehicles, we weren't really thinking in the early going about cars driving around on city streets because that just seemed too crazy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, why would you want to do that? Right? We couldn't even imagine the idea of a robot, robot taxi, the truth be told. We were thinking about how robots would work in these kinds of useful things that we thought about, you know, and these um, these areas to do exploration and to do uh, you know work in farms or mines and uh, that kind of uh, application not on not at the same place where you have bicyclists and pedestrians and other cars so we, I started to think about the huge advantages that you would have if you could fly somewhere you know sometimes to to get from A to B or separated by a few hundred meters, you actually have to take a very circuitous route to get there but if you could fly you just sort of go up in the air and there's very little up in the air that can stop you. Uh, it's a very short short route and actually much easier to get there. Some, sometimes when I explain my, uh, how we were thinking about it to uh, some of my colleagues working in self-driving cars, they said, well, wait a minute, you're cheating. <laughs> yes, <laughs> after yeah. all these years, I like the idea that we're <laughs> cheating. You know, so making the problem, cheating in the sense of making the problem a little easier, right? Just finding an easier problem. And it, in, conceptually, the problem is easier. 
um, when you are when you get to go from A to B. There are, of course, things that make it much more difficult in some ways. Gravity is not your friend. My, you know, energetics are uh, difficult in, in air vehicles. You can carry much less. And, uh, of course, turbulence and wind and all of these kinds of things, which don't bother things that are on the ground uh, as much, can be, become a very big deal for anything that flies. But many, many of the problems we have in sensing the environment and being able to react to what there is, generally are easier in if you're curious I'll explain why they're easier when you're when you're in the air but so that's how it started you know I have background in in self-driving cars and and the sort of ground mobile robotics uh, working outdoors in all kinds of environments and opportunity presents itself um, a lot of the early opportunities for us came from the Defense Department from DARPA and the Office of Naval Research and things like this. And there were very few people doing this kind of work. So we, we got some traction and uh, one thing led to another. And now here's where we are. So, so uh, those look like contracts from these large bodies to develop the IP that they can then use or can you, can, I, I know that there's sometimes, you know, no, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually relatively simple. Um, you know, typically the defense department doesn't want to own, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, they don't, automatically take the IP. Okay. Um, they have what's called government purpose rights, which is that um, they would like to be able to use that technology. They fund it for government purpose rights um, so that you don't have to then, uh, they, don't, they don't have to pay licensing fees over again. But at the very early going, what's happening is you're trying something new. You're always evolving the technology. It's not like, you know, when you do a couple of year contract and you have something which is now commercializable. So, you know, we were smart enough to realize that uh, this, these were like stepping stones. And we could take this on and, you know, it would help develop our, it would help us understand the problem. It would help develop the technology, it would help develop the team. Um, it's, in some cases, there were small contracts. In some cases, there were medium contracts. And the thing that actually started the company was a program that promised to be uh, so big that uh, we couldn't do it at the university. The terms associated with that contract were... Um, um, such that they, it didn't fit in the university. And that's really what got Near Earth launched. Gotcha. And then in terms of the evolution of these product, uh, projects, like we can, products, I'm sorry, we can talk about all sorts of different companies. They start with kind of an initial, you know, go to market, maybe it's these government contracts, but then eventually if it is a commercial enterprise software, if it is a product that gets sold, if it is uh, in some way, shape, or form, kind of custom consulting for these other enterprises that have a similar use case. That seems kind of like the pathways that Near Earth can now go down once that initial technology is developed, a team's assembled, and a uh, understanding to some degree in markets generally what you guys are capable of. Yeah, it's exactly right. So the way it works well is that if you can use the defense funding to do to develop your team, to develop the the ideas, understand the problem, uh, get some traction in the in the space, get some visibility in there. Um, it's helped by the fact that the the military has um, uh, has their own airspace. Okay, so when the when you fly at a uh, at a defense site at a military base, the FAA's rules don't pertain there. You have a different set oh. of rules, which are now not. As conservative, I would say, don't have enough as a process. The, the, the military defense projects have, um, you know, airworthiness reviews, and they, they want to make sure that your vehicle is safe and can fulfill the project that uh, you're trying to do. But you don't have to show to the FAA that this is now, you know, safe from all possible things that the FAA should worry about. So the FAA is generally happy to not have jurisdiction and military airspace. So that that's a big deal. They also, the military also has a higher tolerance for risk, okay? Sometimes when we work in the, in the military space, the sponsors are thinking about, well, you know, we can afford to lose so many percent of our aircraft a year. Now, that's an important kind of conversation to have because, of course, you can build these things to be highly redundant, gold-plated, and such that they never crash. Yeah. But then you're not really actually um, conducting the, the, the proof that you're trying to establish, right? Your focus is on, 
on something else, which is a whole lot safe. But that's not what's intended to be able to show out what these things are. It's very hard to make that argument in the national airspace. Because if you're going to use it in national airspace, you're going to be flying over houses and playgrounds and swimming pools and, and, and schools, et cetera. So people will be at risk, right. right? And so even if you're testing, right? Now you could go test in the desert, you go test in a forest, et cetera. But the idea is that uh, to test in national airspace uh, essentially puts people at risk, okay? Now when you're doing self-driving cars, for example, you could have a safety driver in there, right? So the safety driver can take over, ideally, if something's going wrong. But the fact that a lot of these aircraft are uh, flying beyond line of sight, uh, there is no place for a person there. So th there's this sort of, this kind of makes it difficult to get bootstrapped to the point that you can actually test the technology, right? If you're testing these aircraft that are anything from some meter to like a few meters, when they get to be, you know, the size of a car or a little bit beyond, then you can actually put somebody in there, yeah. right? They have to be, they, they could have a safety pilot in there. So this, uh, starting with defense contracts has helped us bootstrap our technology, bootstrap the company to the point that then we can make, uh, say something about, get some traction and say something about what the technology is actually doing. And we've got some, so many hours and here's some data from this and the kinds of test cases that uh, matter. Now, it turns out that uh, if you look at all the kinds of things the military cares about for unmanned systems, you know, transport systems, there's the military, what we call ISR, which are some sort of, uh, I would say, you know, um, some sort of surveillance aircraft, surveillance aircraft. We don't, we tend not to do that kind of work. We look at military uses of cargo. Uh, there are some differences between those use cases and the kind of use cases you would have for commercial instances. And primarily they are is that the military wants to rely as little on infrastructure as possible because you're always going someplace new. Yeah. Right? It's not that they want to reduce the cost of the infrastructure. It's just that you can't afford to have infrastructure there to be able to conduct your operations. Whereas in the commercial world, if you can have infrastructure and it's not exorbitant, you should have infrastructure. Right. Now, that's one good thing about this is that you can add some safety because you can add some infrastructure. You're often not just, you know, especially if you're not going, doing last mile delivery. If you're doing, if you're not doing last mile delivery, if you're doing, sorry, the other way, if you're doing last mile delivery, you're often going someplace new all the time, yeah. right? You're not gonna go to make 10 trips to your house a week. Right, maybe less than that, right? So the idea here is that uh, if you're gonna go from A to B to C to D, which are maybe you know a handful or a dozen or someplace like that, you could put some infrastructure at those places or en route such that uh, you can keep the vehicle safe. So I wanna go back to something that you said earlier in the answer, which was your friends who are in autonomous robotics, uh, to some degree you think you're cheating and you're talking about ways in which this is easier. I think you've kind of outlined that a little bit more, but it, it seems, you know, to someone simple like me, super obvious. If I'm trying to go somewhere on the ground, there's gonna be all sorts of things in my way. If I look up in the sky, yes, there's turbulence, wind, these other things that can affect uh, the navigability of the robot, but significantly less just pure obstacles. A tall building, sure, a tall tree, sure, but on just a per square mile basis, there's less if we go however many thousand feet up in the air. Yeah. Generally, we expect these drones to fly low, like low is five, less than 500 feet. Okay. Okay. You know, if you look uh, above a couple of hundred feet, 99% of that space is empty. Right. Right. So there is a, there's a space here you want to be high above so you don't create a nuisance from sound, et cetera. From regulation, these drones are likely to fly under 500 feet because if they fly above that, then they start to have, you know, they might get into trouble with other aviation. Generally, a lot of aviation stays above 500 feet until they're descending and, and they're departing air, airports. And those, right? yeah, those are very kind of clearly outlined locations, whether it's an right. airport or like a helipad on a hospital. Right. The helicopters actually tend to fly in exactly that space. Okay. Um, you know, if you have a medevac helicopter or some other helicopter, a traffic helicopter, they're going to be in that exact space. So these drones of the future and the flying cars of the future are going to have to look for helicopters. Gotcha. Absolutely, they're going to be in that. They, they fly exactly in that 
three to 500 feet space for many operations. Now, if you have a long haul, if, if I, for whatever reason, decided to get in a helicopter and fly from here to Washington, D.C., I wouldn't be flying at 500 feet. I'd be flying around 1,000 to 2,000 feet, okay, just because now it's flying more like an airplane, Yeah. right? But if I'm going to be, uh, if I have a helicopter out there to look for traffic, I'm going to sit at 200 feet or 250 feet looking at traffic, okay? Uh, or a crime scene or something else like this, right? I mean, the kinds of things we want to do. Or maybe I'm doing construction and I'm helping with a pylon or something else like that. I'm going to be not at 1,000 feet. I'm going to be at a couple hundred feet. Gotcha. So, yeah, what's out there are not much, okay? Large transmission towers, um, other helicopters, going to be other drones. So, uh, you know, you can't imagine that we're the only drone in the world. So, yeah, other drones. Uh, so it, it, th that is the case. It's it's it pretty much unoccupied, but um, it is. Uh, and I'll tell you a more slightly more technical reason why uh, we are we have it easier is that when you are when you have a self driving car on city streets as opposed to a controlled environment like a strip mine, for example, there are two difficult problems that these vehicles have to solve. One is they have to solve this classification problem, which is they look out in the world and they see blobs. Yeah. What is that blob? Is that a child it, or is that a person in a wheelchair, right? Because they're about the same aspect ratio. Right. Right. Is that a pedestrian or is that a bicyclist or is that a bicyclist who's walking with the bicycle? All right. Is that a dumpster or is that a pickup truck? Because they may look physically about the same. Right now, why is this important is because each of these things moves in a different way. Yeah. Right. So you, the second part of this problem is uh, what we call prediction, which is once you classify, you have to predict where these things are going to go in the next few seconds. That's important to make sure that they don't intersect with where the self-driving car is going to go. Right. So you have a parked car. It's not just a thing. It's got its blinkers on. So it now going to maybe ready to turn in front of you and it's going to go a particular way versus something that looks like that may be a car but it doesn't have its blinkers on and it's just parked or versus a something like a dumpster that's parked there or a container that's parked there is not never going to move right so these this classification prediction problem is a very difficult bar a high bar to solve for self-driving cars and they have to get it right all the time yeah. right with very, very, very high certainty, you have to get this classification prediction thing correct. You, you might imagine that somebody's standing at a crosswalk and they're looking into the crosswalk versus they're looking away from the crosswalk. As humans, we instantly understand that somebody who's facing away from the crosswalk is much less likely to step into the crosswalk than a person who is sort of like pointed into the crosswalk. Right. So these kinds of things... Uh, that self-driving car technology has to solve, we have fewer instances of that, okay? We have, we have some instances of that. You can imagine if the aircraft is coming to land in an emergency, it may have to land in some place uh, and has to figure out whether things are moving or not moving, what's a good place to land, et cetera. But fewer of these. There are a couple of other cases where this classification has to happen. Is that area wet? Could it be it's water? And I want to make sure that, you know, set down onto some firm, on terra firma. And so uh, the aircraft should land in a place which is likely to sustain the weight of that the vehicle. So there's, there's a little of that, but compared to self-driving cars, we can mostly work with um, geometry, yeah. okay? shape, some understanding of shape. Wires are hard. Thin objects are hard to detect. And hard that's, that's going to yeah. be, a, be, uh, be a problem. For, for flying vehicles that are fly at a low altitude. Um, but there's another thing here, and it's actually illustrated uh, somewhat perfectly by the recent uh, story that gripped the news headlines for a couple of days, which was the Suez Canal blockage. And there's three modes of transport, right? We can travel by air, we can travel by land, we can travel by water. And water is great. It's an incredibly efficient way to travel from a cost basis standpoint, 
pretty hard to stop once you get moving on the water. There, That's right. you, you can have the engine or whatever, but if you're a big old behemoth like that barge, you're going to have a hard time stopping. Obviously, they had technical difficulties that contributed to that. You have the cars and these autonomous vehicles. They really have one move when they do that classification and prediction, which is, do I either go or do I stop? And the stopping is very kind of sharp. Maybe there's a swerve. There's a swerve. A swerve too, but on more or less one plane, right? Yeah, they yeah. can't hop it. Yeah, yeah. They can't go under it. You also, I, and I, I, my, my question is basically twofold. Number one, stopping in the air. I'm not quite really sure how that works specifically. And the ability to have that maneuverability on multiple planes. So we can just go over that thing. Right. We can go under that thing. Right. We can go around that thing. Or we can just stop and let it kind of deal with whatever's going on. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at it theoretically, all of what you said is, uh, is true. Practically, the problem is even a little simpler. Okay. Okay. Which is generally aircraft that are doing something useful, okay, uh, transport-wise anyway, there's a few exceptions to this, um, are going to stay clear of everything. Okay. Right? So what's going to be out there is when you're taking off or you're descending, there may be a crane, there may be some vegetation that was not on your map, right? If you create good maps, this is going to be infrequent, okay? Um, if you have to land in an emergency, you may not have a detailed map of that area, right? But, you know, we can map out most of the, the surroundings of the places that you have take off and land, uh, okay, that kind of thing. Again, if you're not doing last mile delivery. If you're doing last mile delivery, you have to basically, it, you have to map every place with very high accuracy, now, such maps actually might exist. I mean, we could not have imagined Google Maps 15 years ago. Yeah. Could not have imagined such a network uh, all around the world. Yeah, every place you want to go where there are roads, there's a map. And so that's helped. Self-driving cars wouldn't be where they are today without that, that kind of level of mapping. Mapping things in 3D is another level, a whole degree of complexity. But, you know, it's possible that we could do that here. So, yes, uh, it is the case that we have more freedom, okay, to do this. Uh, for practical cases, if something's in the way, you just typically go over, right? I mean, you know, you're not going to try to dodge it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes to show what our technology can do, we sort of like just so that people understand, we'll have it sort of like uh, go uh, choose a path which intersects a, like a water tower. And then you can actually see what it does. It actually goes around the water tower. Sometimes if it's slightly off, then it might go on the left or right or go over, but it's safe. It stays safe. If you point it at some buildings, then it's going to go over. You know, it, it, it can make, it has those options. But this is a sort of an infrequent kind of a thing. Now, if you have drones that fly like four meters or five meters off the ground for some inspection tasks, then they may encounter objects all the time. You know, you might encounter all kinds of things flying around buildings, et cetera. And uh, if you want to be able to inspect some sort of an asset, it's not easy for somebody to actually make sure that you can get to a good standoff from that asset. Okay, supposing I'd like to be able to inspect a large tank of some sort, storage tank. Okay, but I'd like to be able to inspect it from like one meter to two meters. If you're more than two meters away, you're too far out. If you're closer to one meter away, then you're you risk some accident. Well, it's hard for a person to put it in that spot. Yeah. Right. In that case, what you want is that uh, the vehicle is completely aware of the environment as it's going to do its inspection. And if some operator tells it to go closer than it's comfortable, it always makes the right decision. And in that case, you're very, very close to things. And in that case, the idea of going around versus just having a few options is very helpful. Right on. Sanjeev, we're running up against the time limit that we said at the beginning of the conversation. I feel like I could go for hours further with you. Hopefully we can do that again in the future. Sure. But before I wrap up with the standard last two questions, is there anything else you're hoping to share about drones, self-driving cars, near-earth autonomy that I just didn't give you the chance to today? So um, let's see. I mean, I think we have, we're embarked on a really exciting moment, right? Yeah. There's... Uh, it kind of another level of excitement to autonomous uh, systems when you're flying versus driving. You know, for me, any kind of any of these things is exciting. But uh, I, I I have a sort of a childlike kind of a fascination of things that fly, 
It's like kind of a magical kind of thing, right? People drive all the time, but just to be able to get in some aircraft that can take off vertically and take and, and move forward is, is, is a great thing. So we have this uh, uh, unusual uh, opportunity to work on this technology. And what I wanted to convey to you is what we do at Near Earth is how we've gotten some traction from this time when we started the company with four people that spun off from Carnegie Mellon is that we bring a bunch of people with different skills together. So we bring people who are experts in aviation, people who are good at algorithms, people who are design sensors, and uh, we put, put them together to solve these kinds of things. So this is a problem that what we are embarked on is not an obvious extension of the ground vehicle world. Yeah. It's not as if you've just spent your life doing that, that you could pick up and do this. In fact, it's, it takes a lot. There's a huge barrier to being able to sort of start flying autonomously, especially if you get beyond the meter scale vehicle. Once you're sort of from meter scale vehicle, you know, you can buy them for a few thousand dollars and start flying them. And you, when you get the cost goes exponential, the safety issues are also much, much uh, more the, the bigger the aircraft, as you might imagine. So we bring these kinds of uh, people together and form an interdisciplinary approach to solving this kind of a problem. Of course, the methodology, the methods are similar to the world that I came from, but there are actually different problems that we've understood need to be solved when we are there. So it's a, it's a really exciting time. And uh, I think that uh, that sometimes gets lost in all of this stuff about regulation and you know, which exact application that we're working on, et cetera. Right. But I mean, it has to be a kind of fun thing to pitch as you guys are recruiting talent to join you. Autonomous drones that could move people around or potentially be an emergency response vehicle in the future right. is, a, is an incredibly compelling problem to be working on. Like, you know, I, we, I talk with Hannah, we talk about uh, like jobs, pitching whatever the Coca-Cola executives to like leave and join Apple. It's like, do you want to sell sugar water? Or you want to go change the world with me? And there's a little bit of that when you're working on something like this. There's absolutely that. There's absolutely that. It's, a, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time in our field to be able to make this thing. We're somewhat on the bleeding edge. Okay, uh, it's not pretty sometimes uh, because you're working in difficult conditions, tight timelines, and you know the environment is as rugged as it's ever been, right? You know, some of the t uh, jobs we uh, work on. Yeah. But you know, we tend to attract those people for who that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> right on. So I, I think I, I think we we do get we do get people. Uh, who think, wow, this is not a thing that I can do at uh, five different places in the world. Even in the world, we're doing some some of the things that we're working on, the scales at which we're working, the kinds of size of aircraft we're working on, aircraft that can move 5,000 pounds at a time. That's a scale that there's there's only a couple of places in the world that can take that on. Damn. Well, I want to make sure that people can follow along with this uh, work that you guys are doing. And hopefully someday in the future, we can hop on one of these self-driving. Uh, self-flying. Self-flying. Sorry, self-flying vehicles in the future. For folks that want to follow along, what digital coordinates can we provide them if they want to learn so, more? So arrow, N-E-A-R-T-H dot A-E-R-O. The arrow is the aerospace suffix. Um, you can look. Um, there's some... Um, videos there, some sort of ideas of the kinds of work we do. There, we have a YouTube channel under New Earth Autonomy, which we have some sort of uh, basic videos that show off some more details of what we're doing, some of the renders that give you an idea of what, what the aircraft, how it perceives the environment and how it reacts to it. So there's some of that, that, that those would be two good places. Wonderful. We're going to link that in the show notes. You can find it for every single episode of the show at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. We'll also link the LinkedIn and Twitter accounts as well. Before I let you go, Sanjeev, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable challenge to the audience. Yeah, um, I think this is a great question to ask about what to ask the, the audience. I've been thinking a lot about not the technology side, but I've been trying to think about like how we could actually change the world. Like, you know, like what function can we do to change the world? And so um, if I had to think about one challenge to give to your listeners, I would say, imagine um, if you could go point to point 
from A to B, then what could you do with that kind of capability? Now, these things could have tremendous uh, effect on our day-to-day -day lives other than you can get your stuff from Amazon quicker or cheaper. It could really change the way we live because the way we live uh, in cities or we live further away from cities could really change if you could have this kind of point-to-point -point transport at low cost. Low and reliable, of course, it'd have to be uh, reliable, but you could get into something and you could get maybe close to a city within 15 minutes. Imagine flying across the San Francisco Bay in five minutes. Yeah. You know, there's been all kinds of analysis of this, and that's why this this area, which is called urban air mobility, is is a big concept, which is the notion is, you know, we can f use air to do the kinds of trips that you would do on a daily basis. So what would change? I think that that would be the uh, challenge I'd have. And I'd, I'd love to hear what people have to say. We're sometimes a little too focused on the technology side yeah, uh, based on what we hear from specific kinds of people. And I'd, I'd particularly like to hear from the younger audience. Younger, the better. Uh, yeah. You know, I have two young kids, uh, one in middle school and one in high school. And that's an age when they can already start to think about Imagine where they're not unconstrained by the kinds of things that we've we learn or what we see here. Of course, they're already quite active at that age already. Uh, so, you know, at, at that and older, anybody who wants to talk about like, hey, what, what, how would our life change if we could go point to point? What would we do with that, other than moving uh, packages and patients and passengers? I mean, I just think about it through the lens of economic opportunity for some of those metros that people get priced out of that they, you know, particularly in the earliest stages of your career when you're trying to, you know, grab a foothold and maybe level up, whether that's, you know, moving to a new country, a new city, what have you. And there's these challenges with zoning and real estate and all this other stuff. But if you could move that quickly across an urban area and that kind of speed, I just think about who that opens up economic opportunity for that otherwise wouldn't have it. And I also think about, the, I think the challenge for my generation and younger is it's so easy to kind of just descend into the digital, whether that's, you know, the the feed on the social network or you whatever, whatever the kind of consumptive digital experience is, that there's almost like a, a failure to acknowledge the the physical world at certain times and i th i see stuff like this as so immensely hope inducing because we shouldn't just look for like the next innovation to come in bits when it's coming in the real physical world that has to move the needle for so many people so i love what you're doing i'm excited by it i hope people take the challenge and uh i hope nothing but success for the future in your earth autonomy Thanks so much. Thanks uh, for the attention. Of course. We just went deep with Sanjeev Singh. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Sanjeev. If you enjoyed this, then check out two of our past conversations. First with Brian Seleski of Argo AI and the biggest autonomous car company in Pittsburgh, and after that, check out our conversation with Craig Markovitz, where he talks about taking technologies developed in universities and institutions and spinning them out into commercial enterprises using university technology transfer. Craig rode that wave to creating over $300 million in shareholder value and has a ton of insights to share. Plenty more great conversations also coming down the pipe, so make sure you're subscribed. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.